Welcome to Slaying the Sale, a podcast full of practical real-life sales lessons that you wish you learned in business school. Your host, Kyle, is a two-time best-selling author, creator of the Slaymaker Method, and in each episode, he and his guests will be answering the tough questions around sales, lead generation, and all things business to help you transform your sales mindset and move you closer to achieving your financial goals. Now, let the class begin. Here's your host, Kyle Slaymaker. All right, welcome back to another episode of Slaying the Sale with Kyle Slaymaker. Obviously, you all know me by now. We've hit the charts. We've had some fun. Um, But listen, we're going to jump right into it because, one, I have two very special guests today. One is my 19-month-old daughter, Brinley, who is deciding that she is going to also interview our guest today. Uh, But more importantly, I have been waiting for this episode for quite a while. Um, and we are very pleased and excited to introduce the one and only Brian Cuban. Yes, you do know his brother, Mark, but this show is not about Mark. It's about Brian. He's got an incredible, incredible story. So, Brian, I will shoot it over to you. Go ahead and introduce sure. yourself. Sure. Well, my name, I'm Brian Cuban, and yeah, Mark's my brother. Uh, there are actually three of us. Uh, I'm in the middle of three boys. We have a younger brother, Jeff. I'm a lawyer by trade. Uh, I don't, I don't, but I don't practice law anymore. I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I went to Penn State and then in University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I am in long-term recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, and I will have uh, 15 years in recovery uh, April 8th. That's amazing. I mean, like I said, this is uh, our viewers, my followers, you know, they know my, um, you know, I lost my little brother not long ago, maybe two years ago, three years ago. Uh, that's kind of a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. And guys, that's actually how, how Brian and I met. Um, I was following him on LinkedIn for a while and he, he started posting about his journey and everything. And, and it, it gave me the courage to reach out, which I know everybody that knows me thinks I have unlimited courage, but um, with, with something like this, I was very apprehensive, but it, it, it was awesome. I mean, Brian is the most down to earth person. He's very open about his recovery and I'm really excited to get to talk to him. So Brian, thank you very much for being here. It really does mean well, a lot. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's address the most awesome elephant in the room. And that is the ambulance chaser. Talk to me. How, how did that come about? Uh, well, the ambulance chaser is my first novel. I have two prior memoir, memoir style books. Uh, the first one is Shattered Image, which is uh, about my recovery from eating disorders and body image issues. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. About uh, up to half of all those with eating disorders are male, although only one in 10 will seek treatment because it's a very stigmatized uh, issue. Some of your watchers and listeners may, ne- may not even have realized that guys do suffer from eating disorders. Uh, it's they're, they're typically stereotyped as a female disorder. And that, that all dates back to uh, Karen Car- the singer Karen Carpenter. I'm a boomer. Some of your listeners may not know who she is, uh, who died from complications related to anorexia in 1983, kind of bringing dece- eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight, but also uh, kind of cementing the woman stereotype uh, that only females get them. So males are, it can be very difficult for a male to seek treatment or come forward. So then my second book was more about my struggle with addiction in the legal profession as a practicing lawyer and the observations I made with other lawyers struggling. And that was called The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bars, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. 
in that one, there are a lot of wild stories, right? Truth is stranger than fiction about me trading Mavericks championship tickets for cocaine and stuff like that. And we can talk about some of that. And then uh, how many times can you tell your own story? I decided to uh, uh, write a novel and it came about the, the ambulance chaser is set in Pittsburgh and it's about a lawyer, Jason Feldman, who was accused of the murder of a uh, one-time high school classmate 30 years prior after her remains are discovered. Remains are discovered, And he is arrested, he flees, becomes a fugitive of, from justice to find the one person who can prove, prove his innocence. And it opened as the uh, number one debut paperback thriller back in December and I've uh, been very excited about it. And uh, I really enjoyed writing it. And it all came about as a result of a really dark dream that I was having, uh, a reoccurring dream. It was about growing up in Pittsburgh uh, and with a childhood friend of mine, swinging these bodies into a giant bonfire in a field by my house. And these, and these bodies were staring back at us with these eight ball eyes cracked, but they weren't dead. And the dream would fast forward to adulthood and I would wake up all disoriented, wondering why I haven't been arrested for these, for these childhood murders. And that was the genesis of the ambulance chase. That's, that's amazing. I, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting that you, you know, you wrote your two no, or your yeah, novels, you wrote your two books <clears throat> um, first and then decided you wanted to go into, into fiction and all based off of a dream. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on the sequel right now called The Body Brokers. Oh. Oh, uh, even the title alone makes me uh makes me interested. That that's incredible. Um, why law? What what made you go into law? Uh, for all the wrong reasons. I was uh, there's a funny story. I mean, you have to remember. I when I was at Penn State, I was already an alcoholic. Uh, I was drinking every night. I was going to class drunk. Uh, I was going to liquor stores and buying a fifth of uh, you know, Jose Cuervo or one of those small ones and uh, not a fifth, one of those little tiny bottles. And I would chug it in the alleys in Penn State where the bars were to get drunk, just to go into the you know, upstairs bar to get drunker in the hopes that I might become a different person. And so, uh, and I was also had uh, bulimia. I was binging and purging. And I also had another eating disorder called exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. I was running up to 20 miles a day, engaging in all these destructive behaviors. And so uh, I was sitting in, and I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. I was a criminal justice major. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the baby laxative for the blow, believe me. Been, been arrested. But uh, so I'm sitting in the placement office, flipping through police officer jobs for my major. This is before, this is before the internet, right? We had little pamphlets that they'd said. And uh, there were two guys next to me who were from Pittsburgh, who I knew in the major, but didn't know that well. And they were talking about going to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And I started eavesdropping on their conversation. And the bell started going off in my head that, not that I wanted to be a lawyer, I didn't know any lawyers. I had no vision of being a lawyer. Uh, these were the bells of law school's three years. I can stay in law I can stay in school for three more years and I can drink. I can binge and purge, I can run, and I can engage in the same behaviors that allowed me to survive at Penn State University for four years. That's how my mind worked at that time. I was in survival mode, moment to moment, second to second. I wasn't looking three years out or six years out. 
these were my, you know, if you've ever seen Snoopy and Linus with the security blanket, right? Your, uh, your, your, your child will grow up. Maybe you'll watch, they'll watch old episodes of Snoopy. And uh, that was my, these behaviors, destructive behaviors, dysfunctional behaviors were my Linus Snoopy security blanket that I didn't want to have taken away because it was all I knew. That was why I went to law school for no other reason. That's, that's amazing, right? It's, it's, so I, I wanted to be a lawyer for the longest time. I mean, for the longest time, I always had these big grandiose dreams, um, you know, and from the outside looking in, right? Um, I was kind of, I don't want to say the black sheep of the family, uh, but I always I had very- black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always had these, these crazy big dreams, right? I wanted to go, either go to med school or law school. You too? Yeah. Um, and lo and behold, um, you know, later on in my life, it was it was law. I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I love the law. Uh, I ended up marrying the, the county's president judge, uh, her, his daughter. And her my wife's brother is also an attorney down in okay. Virginia. And it's like, as soon as I brought it up, they were like, are you an idiot? Do, do not go to law school. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? Do anything well, but law. I get asked that all the time. My first question is, what are your expectations? You know, what do you see? What do you want to get out of it? Where do you see yourself in six years? Right? Because some a lot of law students, if you go in without expectations, uh, then you're kind of by the seat of your pants and, you know, and uh, it may not be what you expected, right? A lot of laws, like me, uh, I, I talk to a lot of law students who struggle with drug and alcohol use and depression and things like that very high rates in the in law school as well as the legal profession and uh maybe not the reasons i went but it's not but it, but i hear you know not quite often but i hear now and then law, law students are there who don't want to be there and they're there for all the wrong reason all of their family are lawyers they're a first generation law student you know they felt pressured for this reason or that reason so they have all these reasons that work for other people but why do they want to be there and they can't really tell you and when you have that, it can be a trigger to depression, you know, and, and other and other things. It's, oh, man, the, the insight, Brian, is is fantastic. I mean, that's that's an incredible, incredible point. I mean, I think so many people do stuff for the wrong reasons. Um, sure, sure. You know, whether it's outside motivators, family influences, sure, whatever. Peer, I mean, that 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 goes back to you know, as a child, peer pressure to do this or that. Uh, you know, to, to use it, to use, to use a drug or to engage in this behavior or that behavior. So there can be a lot of uh, external motivators, you know, as you go through life of those things. Let's, let's get real deep. Um, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, uh, but what was the moment that you ask, said, unless you're going to ask me how to get on Shark Tank, I'll probably answer. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, <laughs> Even the little one thought that was funny. Um, no, no, I'm not going to ask you how to get on Shark Tank. Um, when was the moment that enough was enough for you? That was, uh, we're coming up on the anniversary. That was Easter weekend, 2007. And I'm sorry if this is evergreen, so your people may watch this. And uh, and I shouldn't have said April 8th. I should have just said 15 years. But uh, yeah, you're fine. So uh, I was... Uh, it was my second trip to a psychiatric hospital after a two and uh, my now wife, she stood by me, came home and found me passed out after a uh, two day drug and, drug and alcohol induced blackout. 
And uh, it was, and this was, you have to remember, this was after a history of, you know, uh, just you had the eating disorder, you had go to alcohol, then you go to the, I discovered cocaine in, in 1987. And that really changed my life, discovering cocaine. Uh, and then uh, I, and then in 2005, my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital after a near suicide attempt. And then three failed marriages in between that all was a result of drugs and alcohol, jail. So there had been this, and then also, I also uh, abused anabolic steroids, almost lost my leg, uh, all trying to look in the mirror and love myself, right? Through artificial means, but that, that didn't work. And so it just finally, uh, in 2007, uh, after that, I'm standing in the parking lot with my now wife and I'm crying and uh, she's crying and I'm waiting for intake for the second time. And uh, I had three thoughts. Uh, one was that she was gonna leave. Well, I'd leave, right? <laughs> uh, she stood by me and we dated for over a decade while I found recovery and built the broken trust. We got married and now we've been together going on 16 years or maybe even right. be over. That, that, that is one of the, that is one of the most, and I will say self-admittedly most awesome selfish answers I've ever heard. Um, because I say the exact same thing about my wife, loyal to a fault. Absolutely loyal to a fault. What, baby girl? You want to make an appearance? <laughs> okay, come on. Um, What's her name? Her name's Brinley. Hey, Brinley. Oh, now, now she's going to get shy. She's like, I just finished Ooh. my yogurt. But All right, do you want down? Okay. Um, so, I mean, my, my aha moment was Christmas Eve about two years ago. Um, I was still really struggling with my little brother's death and I got, I mean, blackout drunk, blackout. Uh, Elizabeth was driving, thank God. Uh, and we got back to our house and I opened up the passenger side door and just fell. I mean, I, I passed completely out of the car. Christmas morning, I sat there with my face just covered in just blood and dried injuries and stuff like that. Yeah, you weren't around for that, thank goodness. Um, but it's it's amazing, like the strength that we have as as men or just as people, like our spouses. It's it's just an incredible dynamic. I mean, my my wife is is the most patient, loyal person I've ever met, and I consider myself very lucky. And it sounds like you'd say the same. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously my wife is the same for sticking around, but uh, yeah, I mean, I had to do the work, right? I, I had to do the work because I couldn't do it. You can't, I couldn't recover for her because people do leave. I couldn't recover for my family because, you know, or my brothers or my sisters, because people, you know, not all family relationships are repaired and people die, pets die. So all of those are triggers for relapse. You know, trauma happens in life despite recovery. And in recovery, I had to, actually deal with my feelings so it had to be for me and i had to strengthen my recovery and the other two thoughts i had in that parking lot were the third the one was that there wouldn't be a third trip back to that psychiatric hospital i'd be dead and the last thing i thought about was something my father said to us growing up my father who was a uh, veteran of the pacific he fought in okinawa he fought in korea he and his older brother ran what is called a trim shop in pittsburgh what they did was reupholster car seats and put on convertible tops, very blue collar working guys and had that, had that little store in Pittsburgh for over 40 years from the end of the Korean war until his older brother passed away in 1999. 
And my father was the middle of three boys like me. He passed away three and a half years ago. He was the middle of three boys like me. And he said to us all the time growing up, Mark, Jeff, and I have a young brother, Jeff. He said, guys, you're going to squabble. You're going to fight. But wherever you go, whatever happens in your life, pick up that phone. Make sure you call your brother and ask him if he's, make sure he's okay. Tell your brothers you love him. And this was the relationship he had with his brothers, even though they fought and they squabbled. And it, and it was a time where, you know, three brothers growing up in the greatest generation era, you didn't talk about love, right? Too much between brothers, but uh, that just wasn't what men do. But my father understood this gift of family and this bond of family. And he handed that down as a gift to us. And I realized I was on the precipice of losing that gift losing my family, not losing their love because my brothers loved me, my father loved me, and he didn't know anything about these issues. Either did my mother. I was pretty good at camouflaging and distancing, right? So they did not have to see them. And, and I didn't want to lose my family. And so all of those things combined were, you know, were my moment where I, I like to call it my recovery tipping point where I said, enough is enough. It's, you know, the first, you know, the, the, I had gone in and out of the first stage of change. I'm ready, I'm not ready. But now I'm moving into the second stage of change, right? I'm gonna take action. And so that is really how it uh, went down. And if you wanna know how that gift stuck, all these decades later, uh, 1200 miles here in, from Pittsburgh here in Dallas, Texas, Mark, Jeff and I live walking distance to each other. And my father until he passed away lived across the street from me. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> I'm telling you, she, this girl is destined to be so big in her life. Um, man, I, I mean, you know, I never would have expected the podcast to to go like this, right? When I asked you to be on, um, that, that's it's so awesome because it, that's the relationship I had with my little brother. Um, my my little sister has always said, you know the one of my biggest joys in life is the fact that I got to say, I love you to my brother before he passed. I mean, every, every phone conversation, everything, yeah. every hug, everything. I love you. I love you. I love you. Uh, so that's amazing. I, it's, it's absolutely. And the fact that you guys all <laughs> within walking distance of each other is incredible. It sounds like your parents did a fantastic job. That's amazing. I mean, we all have our journeys, right? They have their journeys. I have my, we're very different people, all of us. The three of us, obviously. I mean, I'm not an entrepreneur. I thought it wasn't. It wasn't long ago that I thought they mined Bitcoin in a mountain somewhere in Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia. So I, there I know, we go. I'm not a tech guy at all. I'm not that guy. So we're all very different, and my younger brother is different as well. But we're all very close uh, and talk and text and uh, see each other as much as we can. <sighs> I, I love it. I love it. I, I always talk about the the importance of a really good support system. Um, and that's, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you just got personal goals that you're going after, or, you know, no yeah, and, I mean, it was important because I mean, and you'll be the first person I told this, uh, my mom passed away in February and I uh, started having suicidal thoughts and, uh, not preparation, right. But what's the point purpose of life thoughts. And I, I think as we get older, I'm, you know, I'm 60, I'm 61. You do start to think about the purpose of life. Uh, because you're on the downside when in terms of, you know, the current, how many years you had in front of you and you, you look at life differently and, uh, and it really, and, you know, and 
it really started to uh, mess with my head. And the first person I called was my younger brother. I can't tell you how much that means that you opened up about that on, on here of all places. So thank you very much, Brian. And, um, and the good thing was is because I, I am in therapy and I have a supportive uh, family. Uh, I had the tools, right? So uh, it wasn't it wasn't the same thing as in 2005 where I obtained the means, uh, a, a, a handgun, and you know it was really close. It was one of those things. Oh man, I'm having these thoughts, and so I need to do this, this, and this. So it was good that I had tools through lots of therapy and lots of support, recovery. Because in 2005, when I became suicidal, I was. Uh, in a constant Xanax and coke, you know, uh, Xanax cocaine cycle stupor. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, let's let's kind of transition. Let's talk about um, one of the most interesting things that I've I've seen from from following you. Um, I, I I don't know how long ago it was, but somebody was was giving you shit on LinkedIn about you know recovering out loud. Um, and I don't even remember. It must've been a long time ago. I let that, <laughs> I let that stuff roll off me. Right. Yeah. The, the coolest thing, but I, your, your response was just, to me, it was, it was fantastic. It was because if I can change one person, if I can help one person by me sharing my story, then I want to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't so get ahead. that as much. I don't get that as much now, but you know, what's funny. It always comes from the, from the 12 step groups. Uh, and I, and I recover in 12 steps. So, don't get me wrong. A 12 step was very instrumental in saving my life, but it always comes from hardcore 12 step old timers. Uh, so uh, you just let it roll off. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, right? But these people seem to forget what one of the things we learned about working your own side of the street. Amazing how they put that aside when they, when they choose, but yeah, you just, you just move on and uh, everyone can, I, I only, uh, I don't tell anyone how to recover. I, you know, person-centered recovery. I speak in the first person. This is what I do. You will never, ever hear me say, this is what you should do, or this is what we should do, right? Unless it's a policy thing. Uh, in terms of recovery, never. Recover how you want to recover. If it's standing on your head, it's instrumental, you know, while, while singing the national anthem or whatever, or Taylor Swift is helping you do that. It's not, it, it may not be science-driven, but you know, do whatever, uh, do whatever is helping you. Yeah. Whatever, whatever gets you there. That's, that's awesome. Um, so let's, let's go, let's go deep again. Proudest moment. Don't tell other people oh. they can recover by standing on their head and singing Taylor Swift because it's not fine driven. Right. I mean, Hey, we're all just three Pennsylvania people. So maybe, yeah, yeah maybe there's something there. I don't you know. Can, I mean, don't that, that's what I'm very careful about. I never yeah. ever tell people how they should recover. Um, yeah, so so proudest moment. What's what's one of the most proudest moments of your life? Uh, oh my, I mean my recovery, uh, obviously. Uh, getting ma ma marrying my wife. Uh, you know, coming repairing that relationship. Uh, you know, I don't have children. We have two. We have two. We have two cats. <laughs> so I don't have children, so I can't group that in there. Also, one of my very proud moments was uh, uh, two years ago where uh, I was invited to, to uh, keynote the Pitt Law graduating class commencement, someone who has turned their life around, and I gave their commencement speech. And the 
full circle of that was I barely graduated and I didn't even go to the commencement for my graduation in 1986 because I was so ashamed of who I was. So I finally got to wear the cap and gown and they named their student wellness fund, which I'll tell myself, which I started, the Pitt Law Student Wellness Fund, uh, which I started and funded, and they named it after me. So that is one of my proudest moments. It's called the Brian Cuban Wellness Fund at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Well-deserved. Very, very, very well-deserved. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's so funny, like, seeing the, the parallels between you and I. I. My high school graduation, I didn't walk at mine either um, because I was – I mean, I was too cool for school. And I was like, I joined boot camp. Like I, I, I graduated. They said I had enough credits. And like two weeks later, I was in boot camp. Yeah, I didn't go to my high school graduation. I did to my, I did Penn State because my parents came up, but I, and I did not pit law. It's, and for, for those that, that don't know, uh, you know, I also went to Penn State. So, you know, Brian and I just kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah. we are, we'll well, put it that well, way. You understand when I talk about back in the alley, I'm called, behind College Avenue where the bars are, if you were in main campus. It, it's so They're interesting. Right? Back so in that alley. Penn State was was one of those things that like I just felt like was out of reach for for people, and, and I'm sure I'm going to catch hell for this. But my family is not. There's not very many college graduates in my family, um, and they're all wild. I mean, my my father is a very successful business owner. Brian, what's what's next? We know you're working on a, a follow up novel to the Ambulance Chaser. Um, what are some other big goals that you have? Uh, I continue to, uh, I mean, and it's funny because we, we talk about, again, I'm, I'm 61, right? I don't know how old you are, but I'm probably at least 25 years older than you or 20 years. Uh, so my goals are probably, my goals shift, right? My goal is to continue. Uh, uh, I don't see any major changes in terms of what I will be doing for my, you know, for the years I have left uh, to continue to speak. I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, I uh, speak at a lot of law firms. A lot. Of, I speak at bar events. Uh, I speak at law schools. I speak at recovery events. I'm leaving uh, tomorrow. I'm leaving uh, shortly after this to go speak in Youngstown uh, to a bar association. So uh, doing that, and then uh, I, I'm more, I, I'll be a writer, you know. And I can. I'm going to continue to write uh, novels uh, as as I move forward. So. You know, my, my goals are more one year, two years, three years now than they might have been at uh, uh, focus than they might have been when I was, you know, 40 or even 50 or 30. That's, but that's I interesting. I hope that I can impact lives through my story. And, and that's, that's what I love. Yeah. Last night I spoke at the Jewish, our Jewish Community Center here in Dallas. Uh, I'm going to New York in two weeks to speak at their, uh, in Long Island, the Suffolk I think it's both the Jewish Community Center and uh, Toro School of Law and some other schools. So I love sharing my story. Man, if, if you could if you could compare the person I was when I got my bar mitzvah to, to the person that I am now, it, it's just been it's so interesting. Yeah, and, you know, we uh, turn an adult at thirteen, but we're like, eh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's funny. I didn't I didn't know you're Jewish, but uh, you know, in in the uh, in the ambulance chaser, uh, Jason's struggle with his Jewish faith is. Uh, part of the book and uh, and uh, how he views how he views his, his faith, and it's not a huge part, but it's there, right? Because part of Jason is part of me, the protagonist. That's that's so. Uh, I mean, I feel like everybody struggles with their faith at at, at some point. Um, 
yeah, when, when I got my bar mitzvah, my, my parents are going through a, a pretty rough divorce. Um, you know, I wasn't sure who was going to show up at my bar mitzvah, who wasn't. Um, the, the rabbi, my rabbi Goldenberg, who is just awesome. I, I was very, very, very nervous. I was this dweeby little kid, maybe a hundred pounds. And he said, listen, you get up there and you just go, <laughs> 90% of the audience won't know you're, you're messing up. Just, just go have fun, kid. <laughs> See, I wasn't bar mitzvah. My my parents, uh, you know, and my dad went on to explain later in life that he would the anti-Semitism he experienced in the Navy was of such a brutal nature that he didn't want us to go through that. So they didn't force us into the, you know, they didn't, uh, we didn't, I, I won't say force, but they didn't, uh, they allow us to pick our own path, right? I dropped out of Hebrew school in fourth grade. <laughs> It just, it just wasn't for me. And so uh, they just didn't make us do the ritual stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was later in life when I really began to explore my heritage, my history. And I learned uh, that my grandfather lost his sister in the Holocaust. Uh, and they're buried in a mass grave in uh, Ukraine. Uh, for you know, Wow. Believe it or not. And which was, but Roma it was Romania back then. It is now yeah. in the, it is now in the uh, southeastern Ukraine. Uh, fortunately unaffected at this time by, by what's going on. But so I, I was able to explore all of that in later in life and reestablish my Jewish roots and, and in the process of all that, reconnect with all my relatives in Israel. So it was a great experience and, uh, and coming and, and bringing that all full circle. So, uh, you know, and I, I wanted to give Jason some of that, the protagonist in the ambulance chaser. That's, that's so cool. Um... I, I, I was Navy too. I was uh, USS Cape St. George, Iraqi yeah, Freedom, during Freedom. Really? Yeah. I, I, I knew I knew he was in the Navy, but I wasn't sure exactly what he it did. It was funny. He tells a story, and uh, I can't verify this because I've looked everywhere, you know, researching his history. But uh, the Battle of Okinawa was still going on, and the Seabees don't fight, right? They build. And so the Battle of Okinawa was just finishing up uh, when. Uh, when they arrived on the, oh man, what was the name of the ship? I forget, but I just early, but uh, Sea Devil. Yeah, there there were a lot going over there. What's that? When the US, yeah, there, there were quite a few that went over. When the um, USS yeah, Sea Devil arrived at Okinawa, yeah. the fighting was ending, but still going on. And they handed them, they, said, we, they handed them all guns. And my dad was clearing out them, making sure uh, caves were clear uh, instead of building. He was clearing caves. And so uh, it was. It, That's amazing. He rarely talked about his war experiences. Uh, his younger brother, uh, it was too traumatic. And his younger brother, and the video is on my YouTube. It's on YouTube. It may be on Mark's YouTube page. Uh, my younger brother had, or my dad's younger brother had to get his, uh, and we're straying off topic now, but I uh, had to get my dad drunk to talk about his war experiences. And so there's a video of that. I have to check it out. Whether it's whether it's on yours think, or Mark's, I definitely. I think it's check on it Mark's YouTube page. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll have to check it out. Um, I, I, it's just, man, the, the parallels between us are just incredible. I, I would have never, never guessed the the Judaism, the the you know law. Well, I say wannabe law background for me. Um, it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's you know you have these conversations with people in these podcasts, and you never know what's going to get said. You never know you know, who you're going to connect with and, and stuff like that. And it's just, it's amazing. I, I'm, I, I can't even begin to tell you, Brian, how incredibly thankful I am that you, you know, you were on today. Oh, 
cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we connected and you reached out. Yeah. And there, there's a, there's a lesson for all of, uh, all of the followers, you know, everybody that follows me on Facebook, LinkedIn, I got, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000, whatever. Um, take action. You know, I, I would have never, ever been able to have this conversation with Ryan if I didn't just take action. If I didn't just say, you know what, it's a LinkedIn message. What can it hurt? And, you know, Brian's the kind of guy that was, you know, I'd say humble and awesome enough uh, to respond. I mean, you know, we just kind of kind of went from there. So, um, Brian, advice for the people out there. Could be anything. Drop some bombs, brother. Uh, you know, the only, I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll end with this. If you're struggling, you know someone is struggling, there's only one requirement for recovery, just one. Be above ground. Stay above ground and do what you need to do because we all go through our, uh, we all have different paths. We, you go backwards and forward, side to side. Stay alive for that moment when you're ready. Whether that's through harm reduction, whether that's if you're opioids and you're, you need to use fentanyl test strips, which uh, unfortunately, and are illegal right now in Pennsylvania, but, uh, you know, you press, press, press your, uh, legit, press your Pennsylvania legislature, or if they're illegal in your state to legalize them because there's, because we're losing hundreds of, well, we've lost over a hundred thousand people last year to overdoses and the vast, the vast majority of them were fentanyl related. And so the, 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 I mean, great, we're doing things at the border, you're trying to stop the cartels, but it's still one person getting a contaminated baggie. It's gonna keep coming in, right? So get it, at the, get it at the user level, stay alive, test your supply. And some of the hardcore 12-steppers are cringing at this. I don't care, stay alive. Carry Narcan, naloxone. Don't use alone. It's in my glove box. Don't use alone. Carry Narcan, carry test strips. Man, speechless again, Brian. Um, one, I, di I didn't know that, that fentanyl test strips were illegal in PA. Um, yes. I've, I've got some pull with, with higher up state level government. So maybe I, I, I tweet Fetterman all the time. But, uh, you know, I, I, I know Fetterman. I know Fetterman relatively well. How long we need to legalize these test strips? It's not like it's this controversial, big, huge controversial issue. They're legal other places. They're legal. Yeah. I believe they're legal in Allegheny County. Uh, but do we need to sense. legalize them statewide? I, um, I was secretary of the, of the State Veterans Caucus for a while. And that's how I came to know Fetterman and, and Governor Wolf. Um, but, you know, on a, on a personal note for my followers and listeners, um, Brian's absolutely right. It's very hard to know what you've got in that that THC cartridge. It's very hard to know what you've got. Um, and well, let's be careful now because uh, there is no real data that marijuana is, is ever laced with fentanyl. We, we see stories, okay? Look, yeah. but it's always, I, I pay, uh, there's a great guy to follow. His name is Ryan Marino. And he's also, he went to, I believe he went to, uh, he's a Pittsburgh, he's in Cleveland now. I believe he went to Pitt Medical School. He's a toxicologist. I follow him religiously in LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, get all the real data on what's going on in terms of fentanyl, what's real, what's myth. And there is no real data out there. Only 
stories only hearsay from law enforcement, right? That when you get to the source always turns out to be false, uh, that uh, marijuana can be laced with fentanyl. We know yeah. cocaine can be contaminated. We, it's yeah. not, we, we, we know that for a fact scientifically, but we, scientifically, we know obviously uh, heroin, uh, or you may just get pure fentanyl that you think is heroin. Uh, so, but uh, there's no real, no real firsthand or, or scientific evidence that marijuana can be laced with fentanyl. Let's, let's, um, once, once we stop recording, I'll tell you a personal story, uh, but that's, that's interesting. All right. Um, anyway, Brian, I, I truly, truly want to thank you. This, this podcast was, it, it means the world to me. Uh, and I think it's going to mean the world to a lot of people that, that hear it. So thank you very much. Um, thank you. I'm going to throw my outro out, but everybody, if, if you want to follow Brian, Brian, drop them. Where can they, where can uh, they get a hold of you? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, you can always message me at Brian at BrianCuban.com. And uh, if you try to message me that uh, marijuana can't be, can be laced with fentanyl, I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> Just go look at the science. I and, love uh, it. I love it. And, and guys, works. listen, Brian responds. I mean, I'm, I'm living proof that Brian responds. So, all right, everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. This has been another episode of Slaying the Sale and probably my favorite. So, everyone, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Slaying the Sale. If you're interested in knowing more about Kyle, make sure you head over to his website, theslaymakermethod.com, and pick up a copy of his best-selling books. Then head to Facebook to join his private group, Slaymaker Sales Mastery, to become the number one salesperson in your company. And until next time, remember to keep slaying the sale.